This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT Democracy on Tap is a community conversation of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on January 15th at Roxy's Downtown on the subject of Medicaid expansion. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. I'm glad that everyone is here with us tonight, and we're going to have a really interesting discussion here in a moment. Um, I would like to first thank our partners and sponsors that make this uh, event possible. Um, first, Roxy's for the venue and the wonderful food. Let's have a round of applause for Roxy's. Also, the Wichita Public Library provides further reading resource guides every month for these events, and they're very interesting. If you'd like to check those out, they're at our info table. Um, also, uh, a big thanks for the first quarter of Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. We have Stout Heart Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services. Please help me thank Stout Heart for supporting KMUW's Engage ICT. Those sponsorships are, are very much appreciated. Um, so let's get into our topic for tonight. The issue of healthcare is huge, and when we began Engage ICT, Democracy on Tap, in January of 2016, I expected us to talk about a lot of different elements beyond Medicaid coverage, and we ended up talking about just that the entire time uh, rather than more issues of healthcare. Um, now, going into our fourth year of the season, it's time to go back to this topic with an intentional focus. So tonight, Medicaid coverage, uh, expansion I should say, its implications, its chances, and a chance to get your questions answered. Our panel tonight, we have two alums from that very first Engage ICT event, Sheldon Wise-Grau from Alliance for a Healthy Kansas and Teresa Lovelady with Health Corps Clinic. We also have Cindy Samuelson to provide insight from the Kansas Hospital Alliance. And for added perspective, KMUW's Director of News and Public Affairs, Tom Shine. So I'm going to kind of come down the row here and let everyone introduce themselves to you, and then we will get into the discussion. So Cindy, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here today. Thanks for inviting us. I'm Cindy Samuelson with the Kansas Hospital Association, and we have actually been in existence in our state since 1910. So we've been around Kansas for a long time, and all the hospitals in the state of Kansas are members of our association, and currently that's 123 community hospitals that have emergency rooms and serve patients as small as 25 beds or less to larger facilities like you have here in Wichita. We also have a lot of other members that do things in healthcare, other types of healthcare organizations and providers. Um, and we're just thrilled to be here talking about CanCare expansion. I actually joined the association uh, 18 years ago, so I've been there for 17 years. My anniversary is next week. <laughs> so I've been there for a while. I came from the Stormontville Healthcare in Topeka, which is now Stormontville Health, and I was there previously to my work at the association. Welcome. Uh, Tom, why don't you tell us about yourself? What's I, your story? I, I, I'm just here for added perspective. Um, I'm Tom Shine, the Director of News and Public Affairs from KMUW. Um, I've covered Medicaid expansion as a journalist uh, for a number of years. Uh, most of those years at the Wichita Eagle, I've been at KMUW for a year now, a year and one month. And, um, and you're about to get a whole bunch more Medicaid expansion coverage as the 
legislative session begins in Topeka this week, I'm pretty sure fairly quickly they're going to get to Medicaid expansion. Laura Kelly, the governor, has uh, made that a priority um, throughout her campaign. And now as, as governor, she will give her state of the state tomorrow evening, which you can hear live on KMEW, by the way, at 630. There's a shameless plug there. Um, and I'm sure she will talk about Medicaid expansion during her state of the state. And then uh, and at some point soon that will get introduced in the legislature. And then off we go with that. So it's uh, it's going to be in the news. I think it's just a good chance for for people here and for us to explain what, what's involved in it because you're going to be hearing a lot about it in the next uh, couple of weeks. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Uh, next on the line, we have Sheldon Weisgrow. Sheldon, Sheldon, why don't you tell us about yourself? Thank you, Sarah Jane. Um, my name is Sheldon Weisgrow. I'm a policy advisor with the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas, which is a coalition that was built about three years ago to advance this issue of Medicaid expansion in the state. It has more than 100 organizational members and more than 10,000 individual Kansans across the state. I'll get my shameless plug in if you're interested. Uh, the website is expandcancare.com. You'll be able to stay up to date on this issue, know what's going on in the legislature, and add your name to those 10,000 other Kansans if you're not, not already on the list. Um, you know, Cindy talked about the hospital association being around since 1910. I feel like I've been working on this issue since about 1910. Um, I've actually been working in, in health policy and research for about 35 years, but have been working on this issue of Medicaid expansion here in the state of Kansas since 2010, which is when it was passed in federal law and became available to us. And so it's been a long time coming. It's been a hard slog through the legislative process in Kansas, but hopefully this is the year we get it done. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion and answering your questions. Thank you, Sheldon. Teresa, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, hello. Thank you guys so very much for um, inviting um, uh, and joining this event tonight. Um, I come, my name's Teresa Lovelady, and I am the CEO of HealthCore Clinic. Uh, it's about three blocks west of where the Shockers play on 21st Street. Um, not only am I here as the CEO of the clinic, but I'm also here as a former patient of one of our community health centers across the state. Um, so Medicaid expansion is something that's very um, important, it's critical, and if you've ever been in a situation where you found yourself uninsured or underinsured, um, it would really make you look differently at this issue that we're all faced with by making certain that we as a community take care of the most vulnerable people in our community. Um, Health Corps Clinic, uh, we've been around for 20 years, but we've just celebrated our first year in our new expanded facility. Um, at the site, we provide medical, dental, behavioral health, and pharmacy services, as well as other enabling services to help people get access to the care that they need, such as transportation, care coordination, uh, someone to call you up and just check in on you. We actually do well well checks. We go to your house and check on you and make sure you're, you're okay. Uh, we have providers that will deliver your medications and make certain that you understand uh, what's going on with yourself. Uh, we also serve a large refugee population uh, that's in our community. Last year we served about 1,800 refugees uh, that are located in our community. And I know sometimes you guys look around and go, whoa, where, what, what's going on? Where? Where do they come from? Um, but we have a very culturally diverse organization that really reaches out and serves our community. Um, I want to also do my due diligence to make you guys, um, well, to inform you that there are other health centers and safety net clinics in Wichita as well. So in, in addition to Health Corps Clinic, 
We have Grace Med, we have Hunter Health, we also have Guadalupe and Mayflower Clinic, along with Sedgwick County Health Department. And together, we work in collaboration and coordination to make certain that we're providing access for care, access to care, um, various different types of services for those in our community. I think last year we served about 75,000 individuals collectively, and probably my estimate is about 90% were either under 100% of the federal poverty level um, or lower. So when we think about Medicaid expansion and our uninsured population, uh, those are the individuals that are coming into our clinics, but they're also um, those that if they had Medicaid or had access to Medicaid, then they wouldn't, uh, they would be able to better access the system and get the support that they need. So when I think about Medicaid expansion, I think about what I would want for myself and my family and my neighbor, and it's one of those things that you don't really know how it feels unless you're the one uh, that doesn't have access to our healthcare system. Thank you. Thank you. So here before you is a very knowledgeable group of people. Um, please take advantage of the question slips on your tables. Um, fill out your question and hold it up and, and uh, someone will come and, and grab it from you and we will uh, get those questions answered tonight. Um, I'm going to kick it off with some, uh, some questions here uh, right now. Um, so we've been hearing these terms since the Affordable Care Act was presented, but after a while the terms just become words. So uh, tell us what it means. What is CanCare? What is Medicaid expansion? Sheldon, help uh, get us clear on the basics just to start off here. Great, great question. Context is really important. So. Um, you'll hear us up here talking about CanCare and Medicaid. That's the same thing. Um, Medicaid is a program that uh, is, is, is here in Kansas and in, in every state of the country. It is a program designed to provide health coverage to very low-income people who also meet other uh, criteria such as they're low-income and disabled, they're low-income in children, they're low-income in pregnant women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is known nationally as Medicaid. Here in Kansas, we call it CanCare. Um, one of the things that distinguishes our program here in Kansas is that we have amongst the lowest eligibility requirements in the country. And so you have to be exceptionally destitute to qualify for the program here in Kansas. So to give you a couple of examples, <clears throat> if you are an adult without dependent children, you're not eligible for our program for low-income people. You could have just lost your job, had no income, no health coverage, no way to get health insurance at all. You're not eligible. If you're a parent, you are eligible if you are below 38% of the federal poverty level. So what that means in real terms is that for a single parent with two kids, which is a very common family situation, you cannot make more than about $8,000 a year to qualify for this program. So if you work a minimum wage job 22 hours a week, which is just a little bit over half time, you make too much. You're considered to have too much income to qualify for our program for low-income people. So when we talk about expansion, under the Affordable Care Act, states had an opportunity to expand eligibility up to 138% of the poverty level, which for that family of three would be about $28,000. Um, so that folks who make, who are working, 
who are working in low-wage low jobs that don't provide health coverage would have a chance to qualify for this program. What we have done by not accepting this offer from the federal government is we've created a coverage gap. So, as I said, you have to be very poor to qualify for CanCare here in Kansas. If you're at the poverty level, 100% of the poverty level, under federal law, you can get tax credits and subsidies and financial assistance to buy private insurance. But we have about 150,000 people in Kansas who make too much to be eligible for CanCare, but not enough to qualify for that financial assistance. And they're in the coverage gap. And so when we talk about expanding CanCare or expanding Medicaid, we are talking about expanding the program to cover all those people who are in that gap, most of whom are uninsured and unable to really access good health care and health coverage. Um, why did we not opt in to start with? Tom, can you shed a little light? Don't want to name names, but <laughs> but a former Go governor <laughs> whose initials were Sam Brownback um, uh, didn't want to expand. The, the U.S. Supreme Court gave um, Medicaid expansion was part of Obamacare. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states could opt out if they wanted. It became such a political issue as everything Obama did became such a political issue, but especially Obamacare, um, that it was unpalatable to Republican uh, officials in the state. They also were concerned about cost, which I think is a, that's a fair that's a fair question. Um, and we can talk about cost here. I'm not sure that the cost is inconceivable that we couldn't afford it. But anyway, they cited cost, cited work requirements. Um, Sam's a big work requirement guy for any type of. Uh, um, a government assistance program. So the state um, voted not to expand. We have, uh, in 2017, however, the legislature did vote to expand. Both the House and Senate passed a bill, and Sam Brownback vetoed that bill, um, and they were unable to override his veto. Um, last year, I don't, I don't think he made it out of committee last year. You were, you were, did it? It. It made it out of the committee to not get a vote on the okay. floor of the All Senate, right? Okay. Right. So sort of like not getting out of committee. Um, so last year they didn't vote on it at all because they knew that it would get vetoed again. They didn't have override power. Um, with Governor Kelly, um, who has uh, who's voted in all the years that she's been in the Senate for Medicaid expansion, has said that she will uh, approve a bill if it's brought to her desk. There's some thought that there's enough votes to get that done. We'll see. And I just want to cla I, I, I just want to clarify some something um, that you said. I mean, you mentioned that Republicans didn't want to get this done. I, I don't think that's exactly accurate. There's a certain uh, segment of Republicans that didn't want to get this done. When this passed in 2017, it passed on a bipartisan basis. More Republicans in the Kansas legislature voted for this than there are Democrats in the Kansas legislature. So it is, not, it is not really a partisan issue in that sense in Kansas, nor is it in the rest of the country. And giving part of the context, I neglected to say that 36 other states have expanded their Medicaid programs. Kansas is in a cohort of 14 states, almost all of whom are located in the Deep South, who have refused to accept this program. It, is, it has been accepted by conservative governors in conservative states. Just this past November, the states of Utah, Idaho and Nebraska voted through ballot referendum um, with support of their populations to do this. And so I, 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 I just, um, 
I don't like to, to, to view it as a partisan issue. It is actually a bipartisan issue that there are fringes um, of, of conservatives who, who will not accept this. But it is um, in Kansas, both Republican and Democratic legislators accept it. Um, a large majority of the Kansas population is in favor, 80% in the last poll that, 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 that we did, including two-thirds of Republicans. And so um, I just wanted to clarify that so we don't kind of go down that rabbit hole of partisan politics. This doesn't really fit that narrative. Thank you. Um, how would expansion affect individuals who already have adequate insurance, and what is at stake for anyone who is in that position? Sheldon wants to share. How nice of you. So can care expansion, and I will say, I'll, I, we say can care expansion a lot um, because when we've done public polling and talk to individuals that have can care now, they think of it as can care. They don't think of it as Medicaid because they really do call it an insurance program like can care. So that's why I sometimes lean towards can care. Some folks have thought Medicaid is a four-letter word. So it, so can care expansion is, is what we really talk about a lot at the Kansas Hospital Association. And your question is about the folks that already have can care expansion. And there really will be no, that I'm aware of, impact on this. This is a program that will expand coverage to new individuals and give them access to affordable health care, health care that will help them get proactive health care, before they're ill, and it will help them be able to not only when they're sick, but when they need to get preventative care, they'll have an opportunity to take care of themselves early. Um, it'll be 150,000 Kansans that will benefit from CanCare expansion. Teresa, do you want to add to that part about how individuals who still don't have insurance uh, might be uh, might see a difference? So. Last year at a health court clinic, we served 7,410 um, patients in 2018. And of that, about 39% or 2,900 patients did not have insurance. They were uninsured. And the majority of those individuals were at 100% below the federal poverty level. So they would have qualified uh, for Medicaid or CanCare if it had expanded. And when I think about um, what if we think about what that would do for someone. So if you sit at the front desk of any safety net clinic and you watch the people that come through the door, when you come through the door and you know you don't have insurance, it's almost uh, you're at the mercy of the person behind the front desk. So you either have to come in and tell some sad sob story, you have to come in and face the shame of not having health insurance, you almost feel like you're not empowered to make decisions about your medical um, concern or issue, so you can't really ask questions because I don't have insurance. So there's a lot of things that comes along with um, that feeling like you don't have access to the system, but you almost are at the pity of someone else. Um, I can tell you with our community health centers across the state and our safety net providers, we do have a sliding fee scale for individuals who are uninsured, so they do gain some level of access to preventative care. But what if you need a referral? What if when you go to your doctor, and I'm certain many of you have gone to your doctor and they couldn't provide everything you needed at that doctor's appointment, so they had to give you a referral. So what happens next? What about your prescription? So you're newly diagnosed with diabetes. Wow, that's a big one. Now they're going to give you a prescription for insulin. You got to get a blood sugar monitor. You have to get, um, you have to eat different. You have all these different things. 
Um, and if it's complicated by some other diagnosis, I mean, you have these prescriptions, but what do you do with them? When you go to Walgreens, are they going to give it to you on a sliding fee scale? You know, when you, what do you do? So a lot of people, they do not go and they do not fill those prescriptions. And or they're having to make really tough decisions. Do I pay my rent or do I get my medication? Or do I cut my pills? Do I split my pills? Do I share my, I mean, what do I do to take care of myself? So when, we, when I think about Medicaid expansion and what that would do at the front desk of many of our safety net clinics, it will give a sense of pride, um, a sense of ownership that you actually now can own your health care. Um, you now have access to preventative services. You now have access to a system that many of us take for granted when you have Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield Medicare. And when you have Medicaid, you're like, hey, I worked hard for this insurance. So when, I, when you guys, when you think about Medicaid expansion, I don't want you to think about the unworthy poor. I know a lot of people think about it like a bunch of poor people are going to now get access to Medicaid and they should work and work requirements and all those different things. When I think about when I met my, came to my health center, um, I was a student. So I had two young children, single mom, and I was going back to college to get my master's in social work so that, that I can become a therapist. And I found myself with a job. I was making $12.50 an hour working at the Mental Health Association, working with children who were um, lived in homes, children of alcoholics. So I was in a, working in a program, giving back to the community, but I found myself unable to afford health care, health insurance. And I'll never forget when I took my son, because um, he was in school four years old, and they said he had asthma. I had no idea what, you know, he, yeah, he had allergies, it seems like, but I didn't realize that that was asthma. And so I took, um, <clears throat> I had to take him to the doctor. Uh, I didn't have insurance, and I went back to the doctor where I gave birth to him, and they we didn't have insurance, so they said I have to go somewhere else. And I found um, the clinic, health court clinic at that time, and I went there, and I remember only having 100 bucks in my pocket, and that was literally my light bill money. Um, and so I go to health court clinic, and I go to the front desk, and I don't know what to expect, but I know I don't have insurance, and they, I heard that they'll take care of us. You know, they had a program there. Um, they did, they had a Smart Start program, which was funded by the United Way, um, and I go in and they provided him a free uh, appointment. So we got in and it was a well child visit. They checked on our immunizations. Uh, they gave us a prescription for albuterol and Advair and a spacer. Um, and I, I'll never forget when I was leaving out, they, I asked, you know, how much money? Um, on the front end, they didn't collect anything. On the back end, they didn't collect anything. It was just something they did for the community for children that were under five. And they had me hook, line, and sinker. From that moment, I always came to health court clinic as my civic duty when I got insurance. And Lord behold, I joined the board, and now I'm the CEO. So <laughs> I'm committed. <laughs> but I can tell you when I went to Walgreens with those three prescriptions, I had to make a choice. You know, at there, I couldn't afford that. That's like four or 500 bucks if you don't have insurance. The albuterol was about 50 bucks, and the spacer was, I think, another $40. And so I actually sat there, and I didn't get the spacer. I got the albuterol, and I figured I could teach my son how to squeeze and huff really fast because, again, this was the light bill money. Now I can pay part of the light bill. And I ended up having to get the spacer um, because he was four. He couldn't, he couldn't realistically do that. Um, and so I think about that shame standing there, um, a student trying to give back to my community, working with children, working, you know, like I wasn't the unworthy poor. So when I think about what Medicaid expansion could have done for me and the shame that, thank God, they didn't shame me in front of my four-year-old that had asthma and needed a 
asthma safety plan before he went back to school. Um, so I want you to think about that. So a lot of times when we think about Medicaid expansion, we think about giving something to people who don't deserve it or giving, you know, people are now getting access, they need to work hard and they need to do all these different things. That 36% below the federal poverty level, they already qualify if they meet the criteria. So expanding Medicaid will really touch those above 36, 38%, um, but below 138%. That, those are our neighbors. Those are the people who get up for work every day and they work hard. Those are college students who are working part-time. These are you know, our barber beauticians, our stylists, our babysitters are, I mean, these are the people that bring value in our community, but they don't earn enough or they don't have jobs where insurance, health insurance is provided to them. So that's all I have to say about that. Sarah. <laughs> I, I, I just want to very briefly add to that because, again, I, I would hate that we kind of went off on, on a tangent here about, about work requirements and, and the working poor. So let me, let me just tell you what is going on here. Almost all the people we're talking about who would qualify for Medicaid expansion are working. Many of them are working in multiple jobs. They just don't happen to work in jobs that provide them with affordable health insurance coverage. Um, those that aren't working largely aren't working because they're not healthy enough to work. So the idea of not providing them with health coverage is actually preventing them from getting into the workforce. And there's a lot of talk. Tom mentioned it about work requirements going around. Work requirements are simply a thinly veiled effort to make sure people do not get health coverage. The data are clear that Medicaid supports people's ability to work. The states that have been, there's one state that has implemented work requirements, and the impact of that has been that tens of thousands of people have dropped off their roles, not because they don't work, because they can't meet the documentation requirements that the state has placed in front of them. And I would hate for us here in Kansas to do something incredibly positive, like expand Medicaid and provide coverage for 150,000 people, and then add these requirements that actually make that 150,000, 120,000, or 100,000, or 80,000. There's still going to be tens of thousands of people out there who need health care, who need coverage in order to get healthy enough to get out there in the workforce who are going to be denied. And so my, obviously if anybody has any questions, I or anybody in the panel will be happy to answer them. But my wish is that we don't touch that topic again tonight because it is completely off point and it simply gives ammunition to the opponents of this issue to even give it credence and discuss it. There is not a shred of data or evidence that supports work requirements as something that helps people get health coverage that gets them in good jobs or that helps their lives in any way whatsoever. You can tell I'm passionate about that. <laughs> yeah. Cindy, uh, what about the practical effects in hospitals that this, you know, if it passed, what would that have? Well, as you might know, we really talk about can care expansion doing kind of three buckets of things. It pr increases access, which I think is the key thing that Sheldon's hitting on. More people get access to health care. Um, and that helps patients, which in turn helps them in a hospital setting, too. And that's why we say the next one is improving communities and hospitals, because folks that would come to the hospital and not have any coverage, they might be coming there in a state of emergent care 
they didn't take care of their diabetes in a preventative setting because they had coverage and they waited till it became catastrophic. And then they come into maybe an emergency room setting because they don't have coverage and that's a lot higher expense. And if they don't have coverage, what does that do? It goes to the hospital's probably charity care or bad debt bucket, which means we're all paying for it in a way because our costs will go up to help make sure those hospitals are able to continue to keep their doors open as that number grows. So the third bucket that we talk about is uh, increased jobs and increased ac um, improvements in the local economies. Because we know when hospitals, are, they're one of the, in many communities, one of the top employers in a community. And so when they're be able to continue to see patients that have coverage and, and not have excessive amounts of bad debt, then they're able to grow their services, continue to provide care to the community, and in turn, increase jobs. And every healthcare job um, adds another 0.82 job, so a, a kind of middle-sized person. <laughs> it has, not really. But if you have a person in healthcare, there's another almost person in other jobs and industries, grocery stores, restaurants, gas stations, and other industries to support that that, that job supports. So it is a positive thing to if you think about the ripple effect. Most important, access to healthcare. So patients are healthier, and when they come into a hospital setting, they're actually coming in in a preventative stance, not just when things are emergent, and they have coverage, so they're hopefully more likely to get that care and not have things get out of control that would hurt them as well as their bill, which also helps us, our communities, and our hospitals. Others want to hit on that? But. I think you covered it. I want to go to some audience questions here. Um, to start with, uh, will the expansion of Medicaid benefit those receiving ADAP or Ryan White benefits? Can you explain that a little bit? Um, ADAP, help me with the acronym. I don't know. Okay. And, and, and actually, it was it was it was a silly silly question by me because it, it doesn't matter. So folks that have those programs will continue on those programs. This doesn't change those in any way. If in addition they fit into the income criteria to be eligible for Medicaid expansion, they could get Medicaid coverage. But it in no way impacts eligibility or any other programs that folks might have. Thank you. Uh, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just on, a, on another note to kind of add to that is you're talking about the individual no change, but there may be a change in some of these for the state because right now the state coverage is what, 57, 60 percent that the state's paying? 55, 55 percent um, is being covered by the state's share. If that pool gets in the expanded population, Starting in 2020, it's only 10%. So there is a savings to the state in some of these programs. Individual won't see it, but it costs the state less to do that same coverage. Does that make sense? Here are a couple of questions. Um, although the U.S. spends the most on health care, why are we behind 10 other countries in quality? And then kind of a related question, how can the richest nation in the world not have universal health care? couple of different directions on that. <laughs> How much time do we have tonight? Tom? I'm not going to. We'll be here all until next week doing that one. <laughs> that's, a, that's the I mean, internal question is why do we have people having to cut meds, 
lot of we have people saying, well, should I fill a prescription or pay my light bill? And it just that doesn't seem to make any sense. And then when we try to do a program that would expand it, we put up barriers, artificial and otherwise, to get that done. I, that's a that's a hard question. It's a question you should ask your legislators. Um, the one thing that legislators love to hear from is people who vote, and I, my guess is most people in this room vote. Um, and if you vote, you should contact your legislature about this issue or any other issue involving health care because they do listen to they don't uh, they don't listen to mass emails necessarily unless they're from Coke Industries perhaps or postcards. But individual voters, you should call them. Uh, and, and ask him and ask him that question. I do want to just add to that because at one of our first uh, engage ICT events, it was maybe our third or fourth one we had ever done. One of the panelists shared that when she was speaking with a, one of our representatives, um, that he told her when he hears from three people about an issue, he does something. He takes some kind of action. Three is not a lot. I mean, so. It's not like talking to a wall, maybe, hopefully. So there are about 50 or 60 people in this room. So every legislator in Wichita tomorrow can hear from 50 people about this issue. They could. <laughs> Teresa, did you want to add something? Was, so at the clinic, we provide services to um, a large portion of our refugee population that, is, that have relocated to Wichita or to Kansas. and. We were in a health promotion class because we teach our refugees that are new to the community how to use preventative medicine, how to not go to the emergency room because in a lot of refugee camps, they don't necessarily have primary care or the, the concept of primary um, care provider. It's more emergent emergency care. And so um, this question came up. It, two things. One was, uh, I can't believe people in America are hungry. I mean, that, that shocked me because we were talking about how to shop and, and they were talking about canned goods and just the difference in their home country. And we're talking people who are fleeing their home country as a refugee coming to the United States and they have this big dream about America coming to America and they couldn't believe that people were hungry. Um, and then the other thing was that people didn't, um, didn't have, I won't say didn't have access to health care, but that our health care system was so complicated. Um, because try to sit there and explain to someone um, how to access the healthcare system, how to read your EOB, what part is coinsurance, deductible, copayment. You can get here, you got to get a referral. I mean, it's so complicated. Um, and so to see that from an outsider's perspective when they have the dream, the American dream, and we're talking individuals coming from Syria, Burma, um, several countries in, um, countries in Africa, but the fact that when they get here, it's like this huge shock. And we're not talking refugees who worked in agriculture. We're talking about social workers, and we're talking people who worked um, as engineers, and they had different jobs that didn't necessarily translate um, here to America. But just that concept of, wow, that, you know, I thought this was the best country that I could come to, and they get to get here, and you have hungry people, or you have themselves, they're falling through the cracks, and it's just so many, our systems are so complicated for people to get get the care they need. I think it's um, very interesting to hear the perspective from outsiders. I just, as since we're talking about it, I thought it would be good to clarify that um, Medicaid, and correct me if I'm wrong, wouldn't, qual you have to be a U.S. citizen to be able to get Medicaid, and so in our state, if we expanded the program, it would be to all 
citizens. You'd have to be a citizen. And um, you can expand on that, Sheldon. But I think there was some confusion early on that this was a program that was helping non-Americans. <laughs> and we just need to make sure and clarify that really it's a program um, that is for low-wage, hard-working and in our state, Kansans, um, and that's the target of this program. And, yeah. and, and refugees are citizens, so they're, they're, for the first five years, they're under refugee status, and then they're able, so they're in our country legitimately and legally. Yes. So that, and I was gonna say something similar. You have to be, a, to be eligible for Medicaid, you have to be a citizen or a legal resident. If you're a legal resident, you have to have been here at least five years to qualify. So this is not something that people can just be moving from other countries um, to try to get to try to get advantages on, on the on, on the kind of the general questions where we started again it's an impossible topic to deal with in the amount of time we have but I'll, I'll just throw two little factoids out there for folks to think about about our health care system so the first thing is that we pay far higher prices for everything we do in health care than anybody in the world does and I'm not talking about cost I'm not talking about the cost of delivering a service talk about the price that we pay for the service. And the second thing is that we spend far more on administrative costs than they do anywhere else in the world. I mean, we have layers and layers and layers of administration that don't exist in most other countries. And those are two things that lend to the kind of the high cost and the complexity, which has re really put this thought in my mind to make this comment that, that Teresa mentioned. If we uh, expanded Medicaid, would that do you think that would affect that at all, those layers and those costs? Medicaid expansion won't, won't have an, an impact on, on either of those issues. Th those are issues that largely are uh, ex in existence in, in the privately paid healthcare system. Um, Medicaid actually has very low costs compared to private health insurance because it doesn't t typically pay providers as much. As, as, as health insurance will, and it is essentially administer, administered by the state. In, in our case, also we have three managed care companies that manage the program, but again, three managed care companies in Medicaid is distinctive from the dozens and dozens of private insurance companies that you might have for other types of, of, of private services. And so one of the reasons we have layers and layers of administration is because at a hospital, they might be dealing literally with 100 different insurance plans that the people who come to the hospital have, and they have to, and every one of those plans covers different things and pays different prices, and it's in just enormously complex. Medicaid is much simpler than that. A hospital knows what it's gonna get paid by Medicaid, and there's three companies um, not to, of course, not to say Medicaid is perfect, but it's simpler administratively than private insurance. Um, I have a couple of audience members asking this question. How would um, expansion change the state budget? Will it change over time if it is approved? I can start on that one. And I have, if you're interested in some financials a little bit more in the weeds, I brought some what I call like a financial infographic that kind of breaks down the financials. They are a little complicated, but the bottom line is we have done study after study and are able to show that Kane Care expansion um, will not need any state general funds. It actually won't just pay for itself, but it'll actually bring revenues and savings into the state of Kansas. So it actually will generate money for Kansas. And so we can kind of walk through that. But it goes back on the example I said earlier that there are some things that we're paying for right now under the current Medicaid program. 
and we're as a state paying 55 cents each. And if we are able to expand, we're only going to pay 10 cents. So you can start to see some savings there. And there are numerous other things. As more people are insured, there's more that the insur insurance companies are going to have taxes and, and fees that they will pay. So when you add all these up and you look at what the state's going to pay and what we're going to generate in savings and revenues, it pays for itself. So it actually is a positive. And, and, and so let me add, add, add to that and, and give you a couple of examples. So, um, and, and Tom mentioned at the beginning that, that cost is, is, is something that's often thrown out there is in, in that we can't afford this. And it is true that the Medicaid line item in the budget will be higher. We will have 150,000 or so more people in the program, and the state will be paying 10% of the cost of those services. But those opponents have to learn that there are other parts of a budget other than just the cost part of the budget. Okay, so you have to look at you have to look at the revenue side. You have to look at savings, as Cindy said. So let me give you an example of where we're going to see some savings. So currently, in our current CanCare program, if you are a pregnant woman underneath at a certain income level, you're eligible for the program. You are covered through the course of your pregnancy. Your delivery is covered. 30 days after you deliver your baby, you're dropped off the program and you're uninsured again. The state pays. 45% of all those costs, and the feds pay 55%. If you're a woman who is covered under the expansion and then you become pregnant, you're still covered under the expansion where the state never pays more than 10%. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but there are thousands and thousands of women every year who would fit into that category. That's an enormous millions of dollars of savings that the state would create by expanding Medicaid, just by shifting people from the current program to the new program. There are also, as Cindy said, revenue sources in Medicaid. Um, I mentioned managed care organizations. They each pay a tax to the state for the privilege of taking care of Kansans in our Medicaid program. It's actually called a privilege fee. It's a per head fee. More heads in the program, more tax money comes into the state. And then finally, we cannot forget the fact that we are looking at bringing back nearly seven hundred million dollars of our own federal tax money back into the state of Kansas. That money will flow through communities. Cindy talked about the impact on local communities of that money being spent. That money is going to generate revenue in the state of Kansas. You know, there is one advantage to being late to the game here. We can look around the rest of the country and see what's happening in other states. And what we're seeing is the creation of thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. We're seeing growth in per capita incomes. We're seeing growth in state gross domestic product that here in the state of Kansas will add up to millions and millions of dollars. And so when Cindy says this will more than pay for itself, she is actually telling the truth. This will more <laughs> than pay for itself. Um, and all the folks who are concerned about budgets have to do is look at what's going on in Colorado, look at what's going on in Michigan, Louisiana. It's all been documented, it's all been published, it's all out there for anybody who cares to look at the data. I'm glad Cindy's telling the truth for a change, that's great. Um, <laughs> when I think of can care, I often think of it as, as it's an economic plan, not a, not a health care plan. Um, if the federal government said to you, Here's $700 million we're going to give you every year for roads. Do you think the state of Kansas would say yes? My guess is they would say yes for that money because that would not only improve roads, 
but would put people to work, would put companies to work, would help smaller communities. It'd be an unbelievable economic program. I'm pretty sure we did that and with the Tiger Works program in the Obama administration. So to me, it's $700 million from the federal government. It happens to be going toward health care, and for some reason that scares the bejeebers out of people that it's a health care program and somehow we're down the road to socialism and communism down the road. But to me, it's an economic plan, especially in smaller rural hospitals, and you can answer this, but tell the truth. Um, I read that, I just read in preparing for this that uh, Alabama, I've read throughout Alabama, which does not have Medicaid, they're one of the deep south states, it does not, 80% uh, of their rural hospitals are operating in the red. Is that, what, what's it like here in Kansas? We have a number of hospitals that we would call vulnerable or at risk um, in the state of Kansas. And different studies have been done throughout the last few years. One that's important since you brought up another state, um, since 2010, when we all started working on this, over 95 hospital, rural hospitals have closed in states. Um, and we in Kansas have had two close, um, not all because of lack of Medicaid or can care expansion, but it would have been millions of dollars to those facilities, which would have been a huge help to a struggling hospital. Every hospital in the state benefits, because every hospital sees individuals that have Medicaid or can care. So every hospital is benefiting if we expand this program and helping out their bottom line. Um, but it's not just about the hospital staying open in a rural community. That is a cornerstone in many rural communities, like their school. It's, it's in a big employer. It helps their community be a community to have health care right there at home. So it's, it's, it's really important to many hospitals in our state, and I won't name any names, but we have a number of them in Kansas that would, every one of them knows how much this means to them financially, but also more important to their patients. Access to care for their community residents that need it is the most important thing they're thinking about. And, and just, to, just to add to what Tom was saying, so I started out by talking about how I've been working on this project since 1910, but um, you know, I've, I've been involved in, in, in health policy for a long time. I, I could be wrong about this, but to my knowledge, the state of Kansas has never in its history turned down a federal program with a nine to one match. So essentially the feds are saying, give us a dollar and we'll give you nine. And we're saying, no, that's not a good investment. And I. I'm not aware of any other federal program where the state of Kansas has turned down that kind of investment. Is there a role in all of this for the city of Wichita and Sedgwick County maybe to be asked to address this topic in their legislative platforms? That's an interesting audience question. I don't, I don't think it's part of their platforms. That's a good question. Um, they do an annual platform for the city and the county, and I'm I know that daylight savings time was on there, but um, but I don't I don't believe this topic was. Um, that's that's a fair question because, and Teresa can answer this. I assume Sedgwick County, other than us in Wyandotte County, probably use more need more medical help than any other county in the state. In in Wichita, here's a shocking statistic for you. Uh, we have one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country in the entire United States of America. And the infant mortality rate is measured by the number of babies who do not make it to their first birthday. Uh, the national average is out of 1,000 babies born, six will not make it to their first birthday. In Sedgwick County, that numbers 18 to 20 babies will not make it to their first birthday. So we're talking our children, our grandchildren, um, not making it to their first birthday uh, because of many issues. And when I think about Medicaid, 
um, just women now under the current policy, if you don't have Medicaid when you find out you're pregnant, the process to get on Medicaid is very, very difficult. Like you have to go online, you have to do a whole bunch of other stuff, and we're telling people to go online that may not have access to internet, so you gotta go to Starbucks, McDonald's, somewhere you can get free access to internet, or the library, libraries are wonderful to get access to internet. Um, but then you have to get on, you have to know what you need, you have to fill it out, you have to go through the process, and all the while, the baby's growing inside of you. So a lot of women, um, those that are extremely disconnected from the healthcare system are getting uh, Medicaid coverage in their second trimester, um, in their third trimester sometimes. And so, and some women go without, and I mean the, the population that will never get access to Medicaid um, because they're not documented. Uh, we have a huge number of women in our community that will never get access to Medicaid. So they show up at the hospital ready to deliver, or they show up with a sore, with a, with a tummy ache so they can find out the sex of the baby. Or, I mean, just a lot of different things. You'd be surprised how people navigate the healthcare system when they don't have access to the system and they have to go in through some other door. Um, so, when you th again, think about our most vulnerable populations trying to get access to care, can't get access, but we have the opportunity at a 90%, we're giving it to you, go for it. Uh, come up with the other 10%, which may be a savings if we move this route, but think about the lives we can save, our most vulnerable, our children, our grandchildren. So to add on to what Teresa was saying, the data are clear. Medicaid expansion actually reduces both infant mortality and maternal mortality. But to get directly to the question, every community in Kansas should be concerned about this issue and should have it on their legislative platform. The simple reasons are that every community in Kansas, including here in Wichita, has uninsured people and has health care providers that would benefit from this. But beyond this, what makes this such an interesting issue is that it intersects with so many issues that don't have anything to do with health care. And so Medicaid expansion is the number one policy priority of groups in Topeka that deal with poverty. Why? Because it is the most important thing we can do to immediately address poverty in Kansas. It is the number one legislative issue for groups that deal with mental health and substance use disorder. Why? Because it is easily the most positive and the most impactful thing we can do to make sure people have access to mental health coverage and substance use services. And so these are problems that exist in all these communities, in every community in Kansas, and so communities that are not paying attention to this issue are really missing out on something that could directly impact them. And I'm going to wager probably more important than daylight savings. Sheldon, what, what would uh, maybe an example or two be of how uh, a city or a county could help work on this issue? What are some ideas? Cities and counties are actually in, 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 in a pretty powerful position to work on this issue because city and county governments have direct access to state legislators that work in those communities. And so they should be talking to those legislators and making sure that the state representatives know how important this is to the city and the local community. They also can get involved through um, their own uh, trade organizations and advocacy organizations like the Kansas League of Municipalities, the Kansas Association of Counties, which are in Topeka lobbying and advocating for issues that are important to local communities and counties. And so um, just in the way um, that we all try to use our political power by leveraging the groups we belong to, cities and counties can do that same thing. 
Um, but I think perhaps most importantly, if the mayor of Wichita put a call in to someone, to a prominent legislator who's from here from Wichita who might be the majority leader in the House, I suspect he's going to take that call. And so um, making those voices known and having that access is really important. And I would just say um, if everybody has a trigger of what's important to them, and if it's not the access to health care, we can help provide them with the economic impact in regards to jobs specifically. We, we put out a county report, a county economic impact report, and we can say, let them know exactly how many jobs we're talking about in their county. So I think it's important to know what is important to the individual you're talking to. Um, and if it's not access to healthcare, and it, the economy is really important, or the savings to the state, we can make sure and provide that information to those individuals. And, so. and to add to that, at the Alliance for Healthy Kansas, we can provide data for every county in the state on the number of uninsured people that would be covered, the number of jobs that would be created, and the economic impact of how much more health care spending would take place in that county. Cindy, I have a couple of audience questions that I'd like you to start off on here. Uh, the first one, my representative says most money goes to larger hospitals and doesn't help the smaller hospitals. Can you comment on that? And the second, how much will CanCare expansion help with the loss of small town and rural hospitals? So if it all is based on how many Medicaid patients or CanCare patients you see. So our large urban hospitals see a lot of individuals with CanCare or Medicaid. So they're going to have a pretty big dollar amount. But our smaller hospitals see those patients too. And their budget is less. So if you compare it, it's not really apples to apples. So our larger facilities are going to be maybe getting a bigger chunk, but our smaller facilities, that $60,000, $100,000 is a huge amount to a small rural hospital. So it is. It, if you look at it, you have to really look at the overall picture to understand. Every hospital is benefited. And there are some areas of the state that don't see very many Medicaid patients, but they all have a huge impact. And they would all, I think every rural hospital would be able to rattle that number off and make sure you understood what kind of impact it means. Um, in addition to the finance, it's also the folks in their county, community, city, area that get coverage too. It's also, it's both those things. But the second question um, was how many rules are? Uh, how much will CanCare expansion help with the loss of small the town? Loss. Well, I, 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 will, I know that I mentioned earlier we had two hospitals that left or no longer are serving patients in Kansas. Um, they both said in their announcements that CanCare expansion may, would, was one of the reasons. There were other reasons in both communities. Every community in the state is going to have uh, different factors that impact them. We also, you might remember in Topeka, had a hospital that was nearly about to close that also said expansion was going to be a huge benefit to them. And they ended up getting purchased, and KU came in to help, and so that hospital was saved. But they talked a lot about what that dollar impact was going to mean um, and did mean to their hospital. So I do think it's one of those things. It's not the only thing, but you can imagine that influx of monies, what that would have meant to those hospitals that closed. Um, because when hospitals are looking at this, they're looking at a, for a long period of time, they're trying to cut services, they're trying to keep their doors open, but that regular annual amount, you know, Kansas has left over $3 billion on the table, and a lot of that money would have been attributed to hospitals in our state, and that inaction has gone to the federal government and gone to other states around the nation, 
that are expanding this program, and we've really missed out for years and years and years. So the three billion on the table, you said that went to other states? Yeah, it goes to the federal government, and then that money is provided to states that expanded their programs. So we keep a ticker, as does the Alliance on our website, of what this inaction since 2014 has cost our state and how much our state has already put up. And that number, just to help you understand where that comes from, is hospitals nationwide agreed to take less money for Medicare patients. So for those patients, generally people think of a 65 or over that have Medicare, hospitals said, we're not gonna take as much Medicare, so we're going to get paid less, and that, and in turn, more people will be covered by Medicaid, so it's a win. It, it's a wash, right? We're going to be okay. And then Kansas decided not to expand. So our hospitals are all still paying for the program, and so they took that cut across the board for Medicare and just never got any Medicaid. So I hope that made sense. And so just, just, just a couple of little, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like the little factoid guy here, I think. So just a couple of little factoids to add to that. So that's $3 billion. That goes up $1.8 million every day. So at, it, from the moment we sat down here tonight to the moment we leave, Kansas has lost money um, by not expanding Medicaid. The other thing in terms of rural hospitals is the latest study tells us um, that has looked at rural hospital closures across the country, both in expansion and non-expansion states. A hospital in a non-expansion state like Kansas is six times more likely to close than a hospital in an expansion state. And so again, we have legislators saying, oh no, this is not gonna make any difference for rural hospitals, it's not gonna help them, the data prove otherwise. Hospitals in Kansas are six times more likely to close than if Kansas expanded the Medicaid program. There are so many audience questions. I'm trying to get through them all here. Um, this one, I think we've we've sort of started to address here. Um, the uh, audience member wants to know, do we have the provider capacity to handle 150,000 more people? That's when you're talking about increased jobs. Uh, Teresa, do you want to yes. touch on that? So. Um, Recently, we've expanded our facility, and with an expansion, you have more space, hence you need more providers. I can tell you that um, we have a wonderful KU medical school here in Wichita and up in the um, Kansas City area that are um, producing providers who would love to stay in Kansas if the job opportunities are here. And so, uh, if you, and then we have, of course, Wichita State and other uh, nurse practitioner and physician assistant programs that are producing providers. Kansas grown, they want to go out to rural Kansas, they want to stay in their urban areas. But if they can't find jobs because we can't, we don't have the money to expand economically and hire um, individuals and keep them here at home, um, then that's when you kind of have that disadvantage there. Um, the other um, concern when we talk about losing money, uh, just from an economic perspective, uh, the clinic um, kind of gave away 1.3 million in charitable care, gave that back to the community, and that's not counting bad debt, you know, individuals who just could not pay their bills. Um, we think about that and being able to get those individuals employed. Um, I could hire more drug counselors. I could hire more care coordinators. You know, we can provide um, better services there at the clinic. I could give more back to individuals who need access to many of our services. So, and we'll pay more taxes. Well, we're not for profit, but our employees will pay more taxes. And and uh, and just that domino effects across the entire state of Kansas. So if we're able to keep more money and not write it off to charitable care, then we can do more in our communities. 
Um, and something else, I forgot to add EC Tyree earlier when I talked about one of the safety net providers and I kind of gave myself a note there. So <laughs> I didn't want to skip them out of the loop. But you, so you have this robust group of safety net providers in our community that is giving a lot of charitable care that can't afford it. So when I tell you 1.3 million in charitable care, we barely eked into the black and we probably have about a $100,000 profit at the end of the year. So think about that, 1.3 million in charitable care to individuals um, who really need access to the services that we provide because it's our mission. Um, but at the same token, if we had mechanisms in place to generate more revenue, then we could actually do more in our community and, and hire different types of providers to increase access to care in a, in a preventative environment and not hospital care, inpatient hospital care. Um, so that's just from an economic perspective. I mean, if you, you can think about it this way. Um, how are you going to get more providers? By not paying them or by paying them? Um, I mean, it's actually very simple <laughs> economics. Providers will follow the money. As we cover more people, as we have less uncompensated care and less charity care, providers will come to Kansas or stay in Kansas to take care of those people. How has Kansas dealt with the lack of Medicaid expansion over the last several years? What has the outcome really been? Cindy, do you want to start? Let's see. Well, I think a couple things we've already hit on. Um, we've had to take cuts. I'm going to speak specifically to hospitals and how we've been dealing with this lack of expansion. Um, hospitals statewide are getting reimbursed less for caring for patients, and that's nearly, I mean, it's all Medicare patients. So every Medicare patient, they get paid less, and that's not just hospitals, hospitals and providers. And um, they're not getting any coverage for those that um, could have been in this expanded population for Medicaid. So that means we're cutting services and, and do, trying to do as much as we can do with less um, than we did prior to 2010 um, in a healthcare setting. Before you jump in, Sheldon, uh, will you also, <laughs> I know you're gonna, uh, Cindy, will you also, say, I do want to know though what you, what you have to say, uh, but Cindy, will you also say um, how, or what it looks like going forward if, if Medicaid expansion does not end up going through, could our state cope with that well enough in the future, what, what would it look like? Well, we talked already that there are multiple vulnerable hospitals. And so right now, we can't put all our eggs in one basket. So if we aren't going to do this in Kansas and we aren't going to be able to expand and get folks covered, what else can we do to help save hospitals that are struggling? And so we are looking at other models of care, things that we might be able to bring to communities to provide access to care that are a little bit more than a clinic, but not a critical access hospital. They're called primary health centers. And so we have to go through a huge uh, process to be able to get anything like that approved. And so right now we're working with CMS to see if we can get a, a, a model in Kansas approved to pilot um, that might be able to do something in some of our smaller communities that are really struggling to have access to care in their community because um, we. It, Unfortunately, we haven't been able to expand this program, which would provide it and be the number one solution to so many struggling hospitals in our state. Um, and it would be an annual asset, not just to the population they're serving, but to their finances. You know, I think maybe I won't answer now. <laughs> nah. Come on. Um, look, I mean, th th this is actually kind of where the rubber hits the road. Let's get the brass tacks here. Um, People are not as healthy if they don't have health insurance coverage. So across Kansas has been a less healthy population. 
a cost to Kansas has been a higher infant mortality rate than it should be. So babies are dying who shouldn't be dying. A cost to Kansas has been a higher maternal mortality rate. So mothers are dying who shouldn't be dying. A cost to Kansas has been that diabetics can't get their insulin and the drugs and the care they need. A cost to Kansas has been flatly that the mortality rate is higher than it ought to be because can care expansion would reduce the mortality rate. And so Kansans are dying that don't have to die. I mean, that's the brass tax. Add that on to everything Cindy talked about and all the economic arguments we've talked about, about lost uh, ability to bring our tax money back home. I mean, this is our money. We are all federal taxpayers. We're sending it to Washington, and they're offering some of it back, and we're refusing to take it. I mean, think about that. When you think about legislators in Topeka who are obsessed with returning people's tax money to them, these are the, largely the same legislators who are refusing to take our federal tax money back. We don't pay lower federal taxes because we don't participate in this program. Your money's going to California and Colorado and New York and Illinois and all those other states. But all that aside, this is about health and welfare of people who live in this state, and we are a less healthy state because we have not done this. Teresa, when people um, argue against this when it comes up in legislator, what do you think the propaganda will be? I don't know. I, I always think back to our perceptions of who we think uh, we're helping or supporting sometimes actually have us to formulate thoughts that are not realistic. So when I think about that, um, I, I have an audience question. Is, is that okay? Absolutely. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been uninsured. And raise your hand if you know somebody uninsured. You know, so this touches each of us. So sometimes it's our dirty little secret, right? It's our dirty secret. If you're uninsured, you don't really want to tell anybody. You don't have insurance. That's not what you bring up in conversation. Hey, I'm uninsured. Let's you know talk about it. But I, I think if we talk about it and be honest about it, because we all know that we're all worthy, and we if there is an opportunity to expand or give someone access to something that could literally save their life, who, who are we to not make that decision or to make that call. So sometimes I think it's how we frame the question. If, if we have it deeply entrenched or entangled in political, the right and the left, or we have it, uh, we, we call it an economic thing, but it's really a good economic thing, but it could be a bad economic thing. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about people. It's about you and I. It's about being a good neighbor. It's about being responsible for our community in a way that this will, it's, it's a game changer if we open up our eyes and look at it in a way that's realistic and not, and take all those other layers of stuff that's surrounding Medicaid expansion. I think, I think the argument you're going to hear, whether you consider them propaganda or not, will be the one we talked about was, uh, was uh, work, work requirement. And as uh, Sheldon said uh, on a couple occasions, I think nationally the number is 80% of people who are considered non-disabled, non-elderly adults in, or on Medicaid already work, or work or live with somebody who works. So it's so it's so it's twenty percent who don't work, and of that twenty percent, many of them are taking care of a child, or they're unable to work physically or mentally, they're unable to work. So it's a pretty small number, but you'll still hear that if, as an argument to do that. The other one will be cost, um, and and to me, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that 
at the end of the day, that's, at a minimum, it's cost neutral. I think it's probably even better than that. But even if it wasn't cost neutral, $1 for nine, I mean, if I could go to Dillon's right now and say, I'll give you a dollar, you give me nine back, I'd be, I'd be leaving right now. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's, even if it's, we have to spend $100 million, $125 million to get back a, a billion, you know, I, that's, I, I, mean, I, wasn't, I was, wasn't very good math at all, but I think that's pretty good. But you'll hear that one too, the cost, and then they'll try to play it off against school funding. Um, there's going to be a, a push from Governor Kelly as well for school funding, and there's still Supreme Court mandate that they have to meet some school funding. And then they also try to, and you guys can help me with this, I still don't get this loop. They're going to loop in waiting lists for development of disabled people who, uh, that's a, a thing, that's another thing. And I don't, I don't get that loop, but maybe you can help me with that loop. I'll let Sheldon do that one, but let me hit on your cost one first, which is one thing we've heard over the years is that, well, what if the federal government pulls the rug out of this program? And they, now, now we already talked about it. 36 states and the District Columbia are already doing this. We really don't think that is a viable uh, argument anymore that this program is going to just go away. But um, although we haven't introduced legislation yet this year, in the, in the past bills that we have introduced, we have put what's called kind of a poison pill in the bill, that if the federal government were to all of a sudden have a magic wand and say no more expansion, we would not be required to continue to program in our state. So we feel like we will have those kind of cost precautions in the bill that was sometime has been propaganda in the in before, and I know the disabled population has been. Sheldon, do you want to talk about the disabled population? That, yeah. well, again, with the, with the disability population, that's one we can go into a rabbit hole. I, I think it's essentially an argument um, that providing services to one population of people will pu push another population of people to the back of some imaginary line. Um, the fact is there's no line. You're either covered or you're not. Um, and so um, we will hear that one. And, and as Cindy said, what I was going to say before she, she beat me to it was that. Gosh, it's a race of, up here. But I, but I tell no, you. It, the idea that the feds won't pay their share. And, and just to put numbers on what Cindy said, 72% of the United States Senate comes from states that have expanded their Medicaid programs. And so it's going to be very unlikely that senators from states that are literally getting hundreds of millions and billions of dollars from the federal government are going to vote to take that away from themselves. And we don't represent really the disabled community, but they are all a part of this uh, desire to expand CanCare and are part of the alliance, I think, many of their organizations. So they are in support. Something, another subject we didn't quite touch on is the marketplace, the federal marketplace. Um, and because I know a lot of people may say, hey, we have the marketplace out there. People should have access to insurance because they, they could go on the federal marketplace and they can buy their own insurance. And I think Sheldon touched on it a little bit earlier that if you look at the cost of buying your own insurance and you're not able to get um, some of the subsidies that could be available, and if you're under 100% of the federal poverty level, then you don't even qualify for the marketplace. So now you've attempted to go and get health insurance, and you're hoping you can get some of the federal subsidies that are available to Kansas residents so that you can become insured, but then you end up in that donut hole where now you, you're too poor. You're too poor to afford health insurance and to get the subsidies on the federal marketplace because there should be a safety net within your state. Um, and so that's, that's one that's out there. But I can tell you we just did our enrollment and we do help people apply for the federal marketplace. And it's really sad when you have to tell someone you have 
you have a household of four, but because you're below the federal poverty level, then you can't get insurance. And so that's one of those weird, still donut holes, that's those theories that's out there where people think that, hey, you can just get on the federal marketplace. But that's not true if you're under 100% of the federal poverty level. Uh, would substance abusers be eligible for Medicaid with the expansion? Yes, I mean, it, the expansion uh, covers people depending on their income. So regardless of what health care issue you might have, um, doesn't matter. If you're income eligible, you'll be covered. And in fact, um, as I said earlier, uh, Medicaid expansion is, is one of the most important things we can do to actually address people with substance use disorders and provide them the treatment they need. They're the states that are really hard hit by the opioid e epidemic, states like Ohio and West Virginia and Pennsylvania, uh, folks from those states will all point to Medicaid expansion as being absolutely crucial for them to being able to address that problem. Go ahead. I can tell you, so at HealthCorp Clinic, we provide substance abuse services, and about 80% of the patients in our substance abuse program are uninsured. So we've had to subsidize the cost of care. It's $5 for a group visit. Uh, if you're if you're trying to improve your life and get the um, support you need, the other one is behavioral health. So sometimes when we think about behavioral health, you have to be so sick with some um, mental health diagnosis to then qualify for insurance. Um, when we talk about preventing a mental illness, we're again we're talking about saving lives. And if people had access to health insurance when they feel those early warning signs that something's going on, mild depression, where you can actually treat it in a primary care setting uh, with your doctor, get, get in with a therapist, um, before you end up in the child welfare system or the criminal justice system or any of the other social systems where it's so much more expensive, um, not just from a cost perspective, but also from a quality of life perspective um, to address um, issues in that setting. So expanding Medicaid so that uh, individuals with substance use, substance abuse diagnosis and behavioral health diagnosis would, would tremendously help our community as well. Um, another audience question here. What's the impact of expansion on doctors and clinics who refuse to accept more CanCare patients? <laughs> Shame on. on a clinic that will not accept a <laughs> but th But that is true. So you do have um, providers who will not accept Medicaid because of the reimbursement because of the low reimbursement. And so they'd rather get a commercially insured individual because their payer mix is better. Um, and so and I, it's business, you know, it's good business. And, and most community health centers and safety net centers, uh, safety net clinics are there to support the community. So we do take in those who are uninsured and underinsured. Um, but you do end up with that, I don't want Medicaid because the reimbursement's not there. And in addition to the clinics, you know, every hospital emergency room takes also all patients. So, so an individual that uh, doesn't have coverage um, can seek it in a few different places, um, even if they can't find an actual provider that would take Medicaid. Um, out of the 105 counties in Kansas, how many have no hospitals, clinics, or doctors? I think they probably all have a doctor that sees them every county. 
Um, there's, a, there's two counties, I believe, in the state that don't have a health department. Is that right? Um, so, but for the most part, um, 105 counties in our state, 100 and there's only four or five counties that don't have a hospital. Um, there are some counties that have, obviously, I told you we have 123 in our state. So there are a few counties like yours that have multiple hospitals. Um, and the few counties that don't have a hospital have, have good service, I think, with clinics or physicians um, that come in and out of that county. So I think they all have some access to coverage. But, but you know, large areas of the state, particularly in the rural, rural areas of the state, are considered medically underserved or health professional shortage areas, meaning they might have a doctor, but they don't have enough doctors or other providers to actually take care of the population that's there. And most of Kansas actually would fit into that category. Um, does the data show reduced repeat hospitalizations for patients with Medicaid versus patients without because the patient would follow up with the prescriptions and treatments, et cetera? Um, there have, as states that have had expansion have done some studies, but I haven't seen any final results of in regards specific to that question. Um, I don't know if Sheldon's seen any specific studies, but I know that due to the fact that we're late at the game, that might be something we can start doing some research on here offline. But um, that is one of the benefits. We actually can look at other states and do some queries um, to find out if, if that is and something we could actually add to our points. I mean, th that's an interesting point. Mo most of the research I'm aware of has looked at um, not something like hospital readmissions, but, but specific types of illnesses. And so it might look at how is it, how has this affected uh, people with diabetes and how has this affected people with mental health issues and and the findings are pretty universal that it's very beneficial for those populations but i'm not aware of research that's been done to this specific question it kind of is logical and makes sense but without the data i don't know where we are so. Uh, would people's choices become more limited? Does expansion take away flexibility in healthcare? Uh, would there be other changes in individuals' insurance that we haven't talked about? So I'll, I'll jump on that one. I, I think people's choices, people would have more choices because as, as Teresa has been saying, she'd be able to use this additional revenue to hire more providers, to put them in other places perhaps in, in, in the city that needs services. And so bringing more resources into the system is going to increase people's choice. There's no question about that. It's not going to um, adversely impact the services that are out there. It's just going to add to them. And uh, what effect, if any, would, we ha would Kansas expansion have on the rest of the country? It would hopefully make it more likely that those states that are still holding out would, would, would come in and join, join the modern world. I think that um, those of us who are, who are watching this, I, I mentioned earlier we had three states that in November um, passed expansion through ballot referendum, and we are um, very much of the belief that every new state that comes in makes it harder for the holdout states to hold out because it becomes that much more obvious how beneficial this program is. And so I would hope that if Kansas comes in, it will force other states to look at this more carefully and, and, and to join this wave. They're really just cutting off their noses to spite their face by not joining this program. It, it, I'm a Kansan and love the state of Kansas, but as I go to national events at times, and we were so close in 2017 to getting this to pass, I mean, people all over the nation were saying, if Kansas can do this, 
we can do this, right? Because they saw us as one of those states that won't, wouldn't move, right? We, we just wouldn't be able to do this. And so I do think, um, honestly, <laughs> Sheldon is right, that if we are able to accomplish this in our state, it helps other states that aren't there be able to do this. If Idaho can do it, <laughs> certainly Kansas and other states can as well. Uh, one, one uh, following up on just a little bit, and I've got a question for for both of you, I guess, um, is that um, uh, the uh, for us to have cane care, it's going to have to be a legislative uh, the solution because um, Governor Brownback, in addition to vetoing cane care in the past, also had the House pass a legislation that he signed that it can't be done by governor's executive order. Many states have done it by governor's executive order, and the governor says we need it. Boom, we're going to do it. He's prohibited that, so we can't do it that way. My question is, Nebraska, Idaho, and Utah did it by popular ballot. Have, have, have you talked about, has your groups talked about putting it on a statewide referendum? Kansas actually does not have a mechanism really to make statewide referendum um, realistic. It takes a two-thirds vote of the legislature to put something on the ballot, and if we had a two-thirds vote of the legislature, we wouldn't have to put it on the ballot. So. I know that right next door in Missouri, they're looking at doing a ballot initiative for this coming year, and so we may see the state next door um, be another domino to fall, hopefully not before Kansas. But Yeah, and as Sheldon mentioned, public opinion polling shows 80-82% of all Kansans support this. So if it would have been an option, we would have already done this because um, the Kansans support this program. So when do you all expect legislation regarding Medicaid expansion to reach the Kansas legislature? I can start and then Sheldon can add color commentary. <laughs> um, so um, we are working on another piece of legislation. As Tom mentioned, we had a bill that was introduced in 2017 and it could go for a couple years, but now we'll have to introduce a new piece of legislation. We're working on that with stakeholders across the state right now. And we anticipate that will be introduced in the next couple of weeks. And so we are cautiously optimistic and hopeful that we can get a bill introduced and expand cane care um, this year. Now, will that impact us in 2019? I think it's probably more a 2020 solution if we're able to do it this year. So as we start looking at dollars, it's at a 10% match starting in 2020 that we would be uh, putting forward. So um, that's, that's my best guess on timing. Sheldon? Absolutely right. And if you want to find out exactly when that happens, sign up at expandcancare.com. What do you all think the chances are for it this time around? Are you feeling good? So I am, I am cautiously optimistic. As, as I laid out at the beginning, we have um, supportive governor makes a huge difference. We have, certainly have legislative support. What we don't have is support from legislative leadership and they have the ability to determine whether or not things come up for votes on the floor. And so um, I, th I think deals will be made and, and, and we'll get this done. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but I, I, I wanna um, kind of caution everybody against being complacent just because Laura Kelly is governor and she's a supporter. This is not gonna be a slam dunk by any means. Um, we have a lot of resistance from very important people in the legislature. So we have to really keep our eye on the ball um, but I think it's going to happen. I would just uh, chime in and say the most important thing I hope you guys walk away with today is that each and every one of you has 
the ability and the power to reach out and help us do this because I think we've been talking about it for a long time and it's so important that our representatives know that this is an important issue to all of their constituents. And so this advocacy effort, not being complacent, as Sheldon said, and just thinking, well, we've got Laura Kelly. She wants to do this. It's going to go. It's still going to be an uphill battle that we're going to have to really be engaged and be strong advocates um, to really get this to happen this year. So individuals can have an impact on the outcome of this legislation, but is it simply a matter of contacting representatives or are there other ways to affect this as an individual? Well, I saw nearly everybody, including myself, raise their hand that they'd either been uninsured or knew someone who was uninsured. And I think as a person that does communications as a background of what I've done in the past, your stories and people that you know stories are the most impactful way to help move the needle. So yes, reaching out to representatives, but not just saying, oh, we need to expand can care, but sharing a story about somebody who this would impact and help will resonate with individuals, will stay with them, and hopefully will make a difference when it comes time that our legislature has to vote on this issue. So I do think it is personal storytelling and sharing those stories of impact um, and not just doing it once, but doing it multiple times. And I think ha engaging multiple people because when we put out these calls to action that go through the Alliance website and we do it with our members through the hospitals too, we try to get as many people writing, emailing, calling their representatives because then we will get that call saying, tell them to stop, I've got the message. But they need to get that or they don't think that their people care. So don't assume that they already, that, that this is a done deal. I, I guess I hope we've been talking about it for a long time, but we still need to keep pushing. When, when a legislator asks us to please tell people to stop calling me, we know we're in good shape. Um, <laughs> the only thing I would add to what Cindy said is show up when we need you to show up. And so if you have legislators that have public meetings or public forums, show up and talk to them about this. Um, we are asking, if you're a member of the Alliance, you've, you've gotten an email asking if you can come to Topeka tomorrow night at 5 o'clock for the State of the State address. We want to have a big crowd of people there so that as Governor Kelly walks in and legislators walk in, they are walking through a gauntlet of people holding up signs that say expand can care. And so um, contact them, really important. Show up um, to show your support, and I think that's another thing that folks can do. Sometimes we're not all um, politically savvy, so many of you may be afraid to call your legislator. You may be afraid to, um, or you may not have the confidence because you don't know enough about the questions that they may ask because you could say, hey, expand Medicaid, and then they'd start asking you questions. You may get a little bit nervous. Um, I would always say if you just, again, take it back to that story. Everybody knows somebody that could benefit from Medicaid expansion, so even if you have to say, do it for my nephew, Alan, um, because he blah, 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 whatever that is. Um, so you don't have to feel like you have to be a lobbyist or politically savvy and you know all the background history and all that. Just, just you're in your own way, in your own words. Um, let them know that this is important to you or important to someone in your family. And then again, wouldn't you want your neighbor covered? I mean, sometimes being that simple because then it's not going to be, uh, oh, this is uh, the Republicans, the Democratic, the, this, it's not going to be all that because now we're, we've taken it out of that space and we've made it more personal, 
personable and more realistic for someone to have a different type of conversation. So you don't have to be the most politically savvy. You don't have to have the big words and you don't have to do that. Just be you and, and represent from your heart what you know and what you believe. Thank you. Let's keep clapping for our panel. Thank you all so much. What a wonderful discussion. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineers are Torin Anderson and Mark Statzer. Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.